I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. My guest today is Deborah Williams, the entrepreneur and founder of the Women's Association, which campaigns to change cultures, systems, and mindsets to deliver gender equality. She founded the association while studying for her degree, and it was to quickly become what she describes as a burdening passion, unlike anything I had ever experienced before. Alongside success has been a journey where she's had to face challenges as a young black woman in business, having to overcome the perceptions of others and prove the doubters wrong. Little wonder then that her tip for life is this, don't let someone's perception of you become your reality. Deborah, welcome to Changemakers. Let's start with that brilliant tip. Don't let someone's perception of you become your reality. Over to you. So to be honest, it's something that I'm still working on. I've always struggled with feeling like I have to live up to what other people think I'm supposed to be like. I mean, it's kind of how I get got started on this journey. And I just felt like after a while, if I keep altering myself and changing who I am to fit into someone else's perception, I'm going to lose myself. And that's exactly what happened. Mm. Um, and so I just thought I need to create and feel comfortable in my authentic in my authenticity as opposed to trying to keep recreating or recreating. My mum always used to say it to me, she was like, You're such a chameleon, you get along with everyone, you fit in with everyone, but it actually wasn't a positive as much as it looked like it was a positive um so yeah that's why that is did, did you learn a kind of lesson in life then early on about how to find yourself how to center yourself how to sort of not lose yourself in trying to please others be around others I mean how, how did you find that authentic self to be honest it, it came as a result of a really bad emotional breakdown um that I went through and I feel like I had to go through to be able to get rid of all of these perceptions that mm. was weighing on my shoulders it just got to a place where I didn't know who I was anymore I was 27 at the time that I had the breakdown and I just felt like I was supposed to have more answers and then all these other people's perceptions were on my shoulders and I just thought to myself I'm not going to survive if I don't let them go and just start again and obviously being 27 and feeling like you have to start again it just felt like no I'm supposed to have it all sorted by now this is the part mm. where I say okay this is the path I'm going to go down and sort it out but I just had to start again really. so you had so in a way you had to hit rock bottom to rebuild 100%, 100%. Mm. and it was very uncomfortable but I had to do it I mean th- this this issue of feeling good enough seems to come up in a lot of what what I've read about you, Deborah, in terms of, you know, you said in a recent LinkedIn post, I used to think that looking young and being introverted meant that I'm not good enough to run a business. In terms of how you confronted that, because you, you, you clearly are, I mean, you've got a great story, which we're going to go on to tell. For other people that are are listening to this episode and may well be going through some of the same challenges themselves, what, what's the advice you'd give to them? It's really difficult, to be honest, because it's very, very uncomfortable. But I just feel like for me personally, I had to get to a place where I loved everything about myself, even the things that I really didn't want to love and the things that I wanted to change. It's like I had to accept it. And in accepting it, I was in a better position to kind of address it. And so if I had a weakness, I could address it. And for me, I've always been someone who has been kind of more reserved. And Mm -hmm. when I looked at people that run businesses, they just didn't have, they were very kind of out there. A lot of the people that I saw that were famous. And so I just thought, how am I going to make it when I don't speak like that or I don't assert myself as much? But I just had to get comfortable with the fact that there are different types of leadership mm. and there isn't one perfect idea of a leader. And that, yeah. But but I suppose also that there's only one you because, you know, one, yeah. one of the things, I mean, I, I've got a great, 
quote here about mindset from you that, you know, my, my greatest challenge was myself. I allowed myself to believe that I wasn't good enough and I had to fake it till I made it because of that mindset. I never really focused on developing myself and growing. I was too busy trying to be what I thought the world expected of me. It sounds like at some point you got in touch with what you expected of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And one of my biggest issues was when it came to my passion with regards to women and girls, I believed in what needed to be done more than I believed in my ability to do it. And so it was so difficult to kind of match up just believing in me as I am, as opposed Mm. to when I get to that place, then I'm going to be the person that is going to be able to run this organization. It was I'm running it now as I am and just own it. So, so the Women's Association has presumably been a journey for you personally, as well as building a, a brilliant network. I mean, you described it, this fabulous phrase, as a burdening passion. Tell us what a burdening passion means. So it literally, it literally was that. It was something that, obviously, going to university, I studied business management for my first degree. My plan was to go into accounting and doing my dissertation, it was just kind of what can I do quickly to get a good grade? I always liked the idea of leadership. And so that's what I wanted to go down. And because it was too broad, I had to make it specific to women. And then it became this thing that just took over my world in the Mm. sense that I could no longer focus on being an accountant because of this burden. But it was something that drew me that like I'd never been drawn before because in education, you just go through it because you have to. And this was the first time that I was doing something I chose to do but then how to navigate it and how to really embrace it I had no idea what I love about that phrase is the is the waiting if you like between burdening and passion because you know so often you know kind of popular culture suggests that follow your passions is always a good thing but I think the sense of responsibility um and the sense of actually that that you know this was something that would would have its challenges as well in 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 the phrase like burdening but burdening passions for you came to life in a in a a conversation about gender equality during during your university days I mean tell us a little bit about actually how the women's association came came to be in terms of that that sort of early, early manifestation Yeah, so after I did my dissertation for my first degree, I got to a place where I'd listened to so many women tell me their stories and I just didn't feel like it would be good enough just to be on a piece of paper that I'd get graded on. I wanted to do more. And so I started by doing events and the sole purpose was just to inspire and educate. So educate women in education like myself, but then also inspire us because there's so many women that have gone through things in the workplace, but they've got through it. And then I did that for about four years before I even started the Women's Association. I started doing the events in secondary schools and colleges, and it just got to a place where I felt like I was a hypocrite to some degree. I felt like I was trying to encourage women to be themselves but I wasn't doing that in my personal life and so I got to a place where I either stop what I'm doing because I can't face all these kind of traumas that I have to kind of address and all these messages that I have to unlearn or I go through that difficult process and I start Mm. an organization and that's what I chose to do. Um, so, so when you say that, was this the decision to step away from the study of accountancy, to step away from, I, I guess, the, you know, the more obvious path and to say, I've got a passion project here and to be to be my true self, to be authentic to myself, I've, I've got to follow it. 100%. So I was literally, I had, I was studying two masters. I was working two NHS jobs and I was looking for graduate jobs, continue, continuing to apply. But I didn't want a graduate job and I knew I didn't want one. I wanted to continue these events. 
I didn't know how I was going to turn it into a business, but I knew that this was the only thing that really got me feeling really good when I woke up in the mm. morning. But, and that, so that was- sounds like the entrepreneur in you, Deborah, as well, which is <laughs> like, I mean, a lot of people where they, where they finish up and where they think they're going to go often are, are two different things, but the, the experience, the journey becomes such an important part of their, of their own process of self-discovery. 100%. It's funny because I've never felt comfortable enough to even refer to myself as an entrepreneur because I still have so many things that I have to overcome to be able to still feel comfortable with, with that. I just know that I felt passionate about something like I've never felt before and I wanted to do something about it. And the thing that drives me especially is the younger generation mm-hmm. because when I look at them, I see so much hope, but then I feel like there's so much responsibility for us to even ensure that their future is brighter than the current situation that we have now with regards to gender equality. Well, let's frame the Women's Association today in terms of it, its work and its mission for listeners. So as it stands, we create events, campaigns and content that support women to be their authentic selves. Um, We have three main projects that we're working on that is about creating a safe space for women to come and have conversations about giving girls access into the corporate world from a very young age. So we work with girls from 12 up until 17, giving them access. And we're also um, doing a campaign that spotlights women from different organisations, different positions, just to give an idea of what women are currently doing. Um, Because oftentimes you see women spotlighted when they are an anomaly female CEO or they are changing the world, which is amazing. But I just felt like there's everyday women that deserve to be spotlighted. And also when you speak to the younger generation, it's showing them all the different things that exist as opposed to just setting them up to feel like they have to want to change the world one day. Mm -hmm. Um, which is something that's come up a lot when I speak to young girls. The early advice you got was that you should focus on young black women as your as your main area of of work. You rejected that. Tell tell us why. Yeah, so it was I had a number of different people that were talking to me and they mentioned that as a black woman, people were going to look to me to speak for black women specifically. And so I should focus my work on black women only. And there was one person that gave the example of loads of different women-led organisations that are run by white women. And they just didn't feel like I would be able to run an organisation for all women as a black woman because they hadn't Mm. seen many people do it before. But for me, the world that I want to live in is one where women and girls live freely without historically imposed constraints. That affects all women. And so I just didn't feel like it was real to me and it was authentic to to my journey. But even till now, I still get people that that I talk to them about the Women's Association. And if they present it to someone else, they say, this amazing woman running an organisation for black women. I feel like it's just a conditioning. And so it's something that I still have to battle with when I speak to different people to explain why a black woman is doing something for all women. Yes, I understand that the struggles of black women is completely separate. And we have programmes that are designed for black women and for black girls, but the Women's Association is for all women. Well, let's talk about the situation for all women, because, you know, what, what I what I get from you is a tremendous sense of energy, of positivity about the mission. But if you were to landscape the challenge, we're obviously on the back of things like the Rose Review, Alison Rose's analysis of, of women in business. We know about some of the you know, depressing statistics, frankly, about women in in society. If you were to sum it up in terms of that mission to gain gender equality, how far are you along that road in terms of achieving the objective, do you think? That's a good question. I feel like it's 
it's very difficult to, to say because I feel like even before the pandemic, a lot of people would have thought that we were a lot further than we actually are. And because of the pandemic, we've seen the impact on women even more so. Um, so it does sometimes feel like taking one step forward and then taking two steps back. But for me personally, with the women that I work with and the girls that I work with, I feel like I'm getting to a place where the conversation is becoming richer um, and mm. more is a deeper conversation than a surface one, because that's one of the things I've always seen is on the surface level, there's this kind of let's get a lot of women into the organization and let's get the representation up, which I think is important. But then there's a deeper level, yeah, which is but, about people's experiences. And, and, the, and I guess their consciousness. 100%, 100%. And so for, for us, we're starting to have the deeper level conversations that are making people reflect more. And I think with one of the projects we have, the Executive Challenge, we pair up a young girl that's between the age of 12 to 17 to speak to executives and organisations. And what I've seen from that project is that the vulnerability in the young girls has brought out, uh, sorry, the innocence of the young girls has brought out the vulnerability in leaders that have spoken to the young girls. And it's opened their awareness of life outside of their own bubble. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that's so important when it comes to creating change, because people need to understand why the change needs to exist. And when you put them in front of the next generation, they can't run from it. Does COVID accelerate that possibility for change or, or, or does it actually lead, lead the other way, do you think? I think in some ways it can do both. I think because, especially because of last year, everyone almost felt vulnerable. I felt like people were more susceptible to understanding life through someone else's eyes. Mm. For example, we have meetings and you're in someone's house, you're seeing their family walk past. And so you see more or you understand more of them than just someone that comes to work. But then at the same time, I feel like more so after the pandemic, it's how do we keep this awareness? How do we keep the stillness that enabled a lot of people to be open to other people's experiences and, and um, stories when everything feels like it's going back to normal? I think that's one of the biggest challenges is post-lockdown. Yeah, I, I mean, a, a lot of people say that, you know, which is that during COVID is that, you know, one of the unintended consequences has been it's inspired them to think differently and that actually this next step where we come back together again in a much more community-led way is a brief window to get quite a lot right and you know it made me think about one of the phrases on on the women's association website where it says that gender stereotypes continue to stifle growth kill confidence lower self-esteem and increase mental health issues it feels like that's a real to-do list in terms of the things that we need to get right. Tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, I've spoken to so many different women in positions of leadership, women that are entry level, and there's this consistent idea of what is ex expected of women versus what is our reality. And that expectation and that perception that is almost historically imposed on women is something that is continuously holding us back. And so I've spoken to women that are on boards and they say that at some points they feel like they're just a physical representation of diversity, but their voice isn't heard and their voice isn't valued. So it's kind of as much as representation is important, there's so much of the mindsets and the cultures and the systems that have a lot to do with patriarchy that need to be kind of addressed for us to be able to live freely and explore freely because it's almost like the ability of a woman is being measured against the historical idea of what a woman was or what the idea of a woman was as opposed to who we are now in the present day. And so mm. it's how do we kind of escape that history and that idea of a woman's worth being placed on her domestic abilities as opposed to 
the everything else that's special about her and the skills that she has. And, and do you have a view to the answer to that question? I mean, how 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 do we escape that historical baggage? That kind of that sense of what's been expected in the past, rather than what what might what might we expect in in the period to come. I think it's it's a lot to do with people in positions of leadership, which, as it stands, a lot of them are men. Really understanding how those stereotypes are weighing on women's shoulders, because then they'll be more able to to create environments where they don't feel like they have to live up to a specific stereotype or they have to be measured against a stereotype. You have so many women that I've spoken to that have put on personas because they felt like if they weren't more masculine, for example, they wouldn't be able to progress. And so we have to start to break those ideas down, but we need to create environments for us to have open and honest conversations about them. I had a conversation with one woman who said she can admit that at some point in her journey, she pulled up the ladder because she felt like it was so difficult for her to get to a position of leadership. Why should she make it easier for other women? And if we weren't able to have that conversation, she wouldn't be in a position where she could unlearn all those things that she has had to learn to get to the place that she's in. And so I feel like there needs to be more conversation about it for women to truly get to a place where they feel like they can bring their whole selves to work. Well, I mean, and to that point, I mean, I think think you've made the argument really powerfully that there is a growing level of consciousness among women in terms of being not only aware of the why some of these issues feel as they do, but actually what they might do about it. Do you think that extends to men in, um, and I guess in terms of actually how you accelerate that process, this is clearly something that everyone has to do something about for it to be successful? Yeah, to be honest, I can only really speak from the perspective of the Women's Association and the work I've done and the men that I've spoken to. I feel like there is a desire for change with a lot of the men that I've spoken to, but whether or not the understanding of how the change needs to happen is accepted, I think, I don't know. I don't know if there if it's fully there yet. I feel so, like there's, there's so, there's good, so there's goodwill, but not necessarily good action yet. Yeah, and I think because a lot of the action requires for change of mindset, a change of mindset doesn't happen overnight. And there's people that, for example, make like banter or make like jokes or think comments that are not really acceptable. But it's how do you kind of get that message across where they don't feel like they're being attacked and they don't feel like they have to completely change who they are. But then in some areas, they need to change elements of how they conduct themselves that make women feel less comfortable being themselves around them. So I think it's kind of, there's a desire for change to happen. There's a desire for equality, but appreciating all the different steps that an individual needs to take is where we still need to see progression. I think there's a lot of people that take it from an organizational perspective, that this is what we need to do as an organization to create change. But for that change to really stick, it needs to happen from individuals making that change within themselves. So, so I'm just thinking, I mean, I mean you've got a, a good platform in a show like this to, to speak to leaders about what, 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 what do they need to do and, and what do they need to start thinking about that perhaps that they're not even scratching the surface of. I mean, if you were to if you were to sort of give a message, give a give a piece of advice, what 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 would it be? I think it would be not to underestimate the power of conversation and the power of a safe space. A lot of the times I think organizations try to create safe spaces internally, which in some stead is really important, but there also needs to be their staff also need to be encouraged to engage in safe spaces outside of the workplace that their organizations support to enable these conversations to really happen authentically. I've had many conversations in companies that have been kind of red tapes 
And when I speak to people outside, you see such a difference in how they mm. open up. And, and even when they have anonymous surveys and anonymous forms online, they're still not 100% themselves. And I think also one of the big things that I feel like leaders need to appreciate is this idea of career trauma. It's one thing to say we have a really advanced organisation. We are doing all that we can to achieve gender equality. But some of these people have had careers way before they even joined your organisation. And so they've created these walls and they've created these personas and they're going to bring that same persona to your environment. And they're not just going to be able to drop it because your environment is advanced. You need to create conversations where they can explore how other places have led them to the character that they are now. Mm -hmm. I did this in an organization and we had a session where women were sharing their stories. And one of the women shared that she was sexually harassed from a previous workplace. And so moving forward, she only applied for roles where she had a female manager. And the CEO after came up to me and said that he's spoken to that woman so many times that she's never been vulnerable enough to share that story. And I just felt like it's really important to unpack all the different things that exist that have created each individual as they are. It's not going to happen overnight, but that's why I feel like the conversation needs to continue. And mm -hmm. there's so much power in conversation. Well, let's let's continue our conversation because I want to move from, from challenge to achievements. You said in a recent interview with We Are The City that your, your greatest achievement is being a mum. And I can certainly appreciate that as a dad. I've got, I've got two brilliant daughters. You've got a son, Zion. Tell us a little bit about how that experience has has changed you. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get on in a moment to the work that you've done with your husband, Cephas. But but just a little bit about, about that role being a mum. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting because I felt, once again, I felt so much pressure about what was expected of me as, as a mum. I al always wanted to be a mum, but it was kind of a blind ambition almost. It was just something I expect, something that I thought I was supposed to be. But I never really appreciated the beauty in being a mum until I was one. The beauty it's of just... being a mum. What a lovely phrase. <laughs> what is that? Tell, tell us about that beauty. I feel like it's made me feel more comfortable being myself. And it's also so interesting because when I see Zion, I just feel like I always had this idea again, as we discussed, of being good enough. What? How much do I need to do to just be good enough? Or what do I need to do to be a good enough mum? And I just thought to myself that if I am comfortable and if I'm doing the best I can, that is good enough. Um, and it's changed my mindset so much on what I thought was my authentic self versus what my authentic self is now, because I feel like I needed to be even more of myself so that he could be comfortable being himself, no matter what that means. I feel like there is, in being a mum, that it's just, I can't even put it into words, really. It's just a transformative experience mm. that has taught me so much about myself that I didn't even think I needed to learn or that there was to learn about myself. Is part of it summoning up the best of yourself, do you think, in terms of that, that trying trying to just move things forward in terms of the, the nature of bringing up a young child and wanting good things, brilliant things, wonderful things to happen? Yeah, yeah, no, it... It is, I feel like it's just a constant discovery of self. Like there is every day I'm learning something new about Zion. I'm learning something new about myself and how I work, like how I bring up Zion. I feel like it's just consistently exploring myself through the birth of my child, mm. which I never, I never thought was even a thing. I just thought when you have a child, you just kind of bring them up and but I didn't think about the depth of bringing them up. I didn't think about how how beautiful it is to really experience. Like, it, I, yeah, it's just so. I'm crazy. laughing because I, I have exactly the same the same experience. No, nobody yeah. tells you what, what 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 you're in for. Tell us about tell us about Letter to Zion. 
Yeah, so Zion was born on the 8th of June, 2020, but he was due on the 26th of May. So my husband, Sifas, he works a lot in the space of Black, well, he initially started with Black men and the representation of Black men in the media. And then he had this vision of, of expanding it to the wider Black community. But that was kind of still something we were discussing. And then the murder of George Floyd happened on the 25th mm-hmm. of May. And he initially, I think, went to a, a place where he was a bit numb. And then he had some people, uh, five men that called him that were seated in like positions of power in their organisations. And they were, it kind of led him to a place where he felt like, okay, I want to try and do something because I want, we all want to see a better world where black men aren't treated in such a horrific way. And so it was kind of that, that sparked him to say, okay, this is supposed to be a beautiful time for me because I was, he was going to take off time, disconnect completely, which he never does just to spend time with Zion and myself. And so he was like, okay, where I was supposed to do that, but I I don't feel like the world is conducive for my child I feel like it's my responsibility to do something about that and so he set out to write a letter to Zion about the world that we live in and the world that he wants to see and what he's going to do to help create that world mm. and so he wrote the letter he was awake endlessly for, for nights on end and then we reviewed the letter together and read over it and kind of had more conversations we would consistently go for walks I was very heavily pregnant we'd go for walks and we'd be talking about the letter we'd be talking about the world we want to see and then when he released the letter and released the Black Christmas Network we've been working I've been working with him to execute the roundtables which he literally just completed Uh, last week it's a phenomenal piece of prose and we'll include a link to to it with this yeah 100% but it feels like when you read it is that it feels like this amazing balance between pain yet positivity, the pain of, you know, the dreadful events around George Floyd, but also the positivity that this letter to an unborn son is is there as really the great hopes for the future. And, and I, I felt it's a tremendous achievement from you both on, on that. Yeah, no, it's, it's difficult because there was a lot of pain. It was very, he's not someone that is, he expresses emotion by crying. And I haven't seen him cry for many years. And this was the first time in a long time that he really, it really affected him. And so there was a lot of pain in it. But then when you, we appreciate the fact that I'm carrying a baby and we're about to bring this baby into this world, we had to, we had to hold on to some idea of hope, but not only for us, but we had to give hope also to other people. And I think that's the beauty of the letter in the sense that it it shows the pain of the moment, but then it leads us into the hope for the future. And it, it does it alongside the, the journey, I guess, of Zion and, and our son. And he just turned one a few days ago and it, it makes us think of a year later, kind of where are we? And and by the time he gets to the age of five and ten, where do we want to be at that time also? So I think it it's just something that's been really powerful. Um, and even the kind of actions off the back of it with the roundtable conversations that we've done, it's been so powerful to listen into them and to support him as he's doing them. But yeah. It's funny, when I started this interview, I... I thought we would spend a lot of it talking about the unburdened passion, which, which, which of course we have. But yeah. I also think that a lot of this interview has been about finding peace with with yourself and with some of these issues. And you know, it's, it's one of the phrases that that you've used to describe your your new normal: finding peace in the reality that some things are just out of my control. How, how do you do this? I, I guess is the question that comes from that. Yeah, it's just I, I feel like it's something that I see from my mum. To be honest, she's just so content, regardless of what is going on around. She just has this peace. And for me, last year, having a baby in, during a pandemic, um, trying to kickstart two projects that I mentioned 
we were going to release them in March for Women's Month, but then COVID happened and I got COVID whilst I was pregnant. So I had to Mm. take some time back. And then it was having a baby during COVID, only being able to have my husband as opposed to my husband and my mom getting married during COVID and having the restrictions there. There was just so much that I couldn't control. And as opposed to, I'm someone that can get anxious a lot. And I just thought I can't afford to just be anxious every day. I just need to be okay with the fact that I am not in control of everything and I can't be in control of everything. And so I just have to take each day at a time. And Mm. that was literally my thing last year was just take each day at a time and you'll get through it. And that's literally what's happened. And I guess it also frames my my last question to you, which is your your wonderful quote for life to to live, love, and laugh. What does that mean so much to you? Tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, I feel like for a long time, um, for many years, I almost felt like I've been holding my breath in so many rooms. I've not been myself. I've not felt comfortable in my skin. I've constantly focused on what I need to change as opposed to what I'm good at. I had this session with a therapist one time and they asked me all these questions about my strengths and my weaknesses. And my weaknesses were so long and my strengths was probably about four um, because I just couldn't get out of my head. And especially because of the birth of my son, I just got to a place where I just felt like... I really need to embrace life. All the ups and downs of life, I just need to embrace it. I love hard. I love laughing. And I just feel like I need to live for myself. I need to live for my son, for my husband, and for the people that I'm trying to to create a better world for. So that's, yeah, that's why I mean to. Oh, Deborah, I absolutely pleasure. And I was just thinking is that, you know, I guess a lot of us are like that, which you may, you may well look at a long list of things you see as you know the negative side but even if you've got a short list they can far outweigh a kind of flimsier list of problems and i think to to live love and laugh is is a wonderful trio thank you very much for joining me on change makers thank you for having me michael. change makers is brought to you by the campaigns firm seven hills and presented by me michael Heyman. pure being is the name of our soundtrack and it's written and performed by the brilliant bt wolf to find out more head over to changemakers.works and if you like what you hear why not give us a rating Thank you.